Greetings, happy warriors, and thank you for tuning in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, am solemnly dedicated to revealing how the world really works. And also for reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that numbers really count. Get see what I did there? Numbers really count, right? Uh, Well, in all seriousness, uh, they, they really do. Numbers matter. Because people can pull the wool over your eyes by spinning yarns and telling stories and long words and complicated accounts. But in the final analysis, numbers tell the truth. Numbers don't lie. And uh, numbers do matter. And so uh, with that in mind, and only partially in mind, I want to remind you to please go ahead and subscribe so as you can help raise our subscription numbers of this show uh, even more rapidly than they are already rising. And I I thank you very much, those of you who've been so very diligent at helping to promote the show and talking about it and telling people about it. Uh, I appreciate it. Your efforts show and... uh, I really do enjoy seeing those subscription numbers go up. So go ahead and hit subscribe. And uh, it doesn't matter what platform you're listening to the show on. Just go ahead and do that. And uh, we'll be in very good shape indeed. So uh, thank you very much indeed for that. Now, uh, the, um, the details of the war that Israel is waging... Um, and it's an existential war, like all Israel's wars are, because as as everybody knows, um, if the Muslim world put down its weapons, there would be a glorious peace in the Middle East. There would be prosperity. And you can just imagine how prosperous the region would become as uh, many countries around the world filled with mind-boggling relief and no longer having to deal with those problems, would be happy and would enthusiastically fund a rebuilding. But no, that is not going to happen because uh, the the, um, jihad world of radical Islam has really picked up on the spiritual characteristics that motivated the Nazis during the middle of the 20th century. And one of uh, those characteristics, which is really very well captured in the fourth uh, part of Richard Wagner's great musical masterpiece, The Ring Cycle, and the the first one is Das Rheingold, the, the gold of the river Rhine, and that's where we're introduced to the Germanic vision of the Jew as a dark dwarf motivated by money who lives underground and then it finishes with the fourth uh, part of the opera after you've <laughs> listened for about 15 hours uh Demerung, twilight of the gods and essentially uh, what happens is valhalla and the whole everything just goes up in flames it's all over 
And this is very much the way Hitler uh, prosecuted the last months of World War II, when there was still a chance of um, at least talking about a, a surrender and salvaging a little bit of Germany. Uh, no, Hitler at this point was sending a young 15- and 14-year-old Hitler youths into battle against the Russians in a futile attempt to stop them taking Berlin. And uh, essentially, Berlin went up in flames. It was utterly destroyed. The Soviets invaded from the east, um, raping about 2 million German women at least. I, I know those numbers sound absolutely stupendous, but um, but that's what the Slavic army did, and uh, and it, it inflicted uh, a destruction upon Germany that pretty much the rest of the world felt they deserved. But that was really a replay of Wagner's Goethe Dämmerung. The uh, just let we don't care. It's it's all going to go up in flames. Nothing matters. Uh, if we didn't get our way, we're not able to succeed in destroying the Hebrew people from off the face of the earth. Then it doesn't matter. It can all go up in flames. And uh, and you see exactly the same phenomenon among Islamic jihadists today, uh, which is, again, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many Gazans get killed. Hamas doesn't care. It doesn't matter as long as we never ever surrender our sacred mission of wiping out Israel, wiping out the Hebrew people, uh, that's all, all that matters and uh, that's, that's all that counts. And so Goethe Demering continues and uh, we find that this same quality that has shown up in different epochs um, of Jewish history one of the times, by the way, occurred in present-day Iran, it used to be known as Persia, and that, of course, is the story of Queen Esther in the uh, in the Bible, in the Tanakh, um, the Book of Esther. But at any rate, um, what is happening? And to tell you all the, the latest news, I'm not going to do because, first of all, by the time you hear this, you know, even hours, let alone days, can make a difference, weeks, and can't even speak about. So uh, you're certainly up on the news as I am. But I will uh, perhaps try and shed a little light on it from a perspective that uh, I hope has not yet crossed your radar screen so that I can try and bring perhaps just a little value to you on this thing. And and, and here's what it is. Um, one of the things that religion does, and I'm saying religion in general, I when I say that I usually mean Judeo-Christian Bible-based religion of Judaism and Christianity, but um, it's also true for the culture of the Quran. And there are certain things that religion does and helps to overcome the dangerous trends of secularism. And the trend of a society or a culture to descend into secularism, and I say descend because for a long time, you know, virtually you could say from the Enlightenment, people have assumed that if we can just get rid of religion, when religion dies away, we will have a benign world of scientific-driven secularism. But I think that little by little, it's becoming increasingly evident that uh, secularism is very far from benign. 
One of the things that uh, secularism does is it contracts a time frame. Um, generally speaking, the more secular a person is, the more focused he is on the present. The less aware he is of the future, the more oblivious he is of the past, the present is what matters. And the more secular one is, the more focused on the present one is, and the more indifferent one is to future and past in real terms. Now, uh, secularism is very worried about climate change, but even those who most ardently promote climate change as a great threat to humanity know perfectly well that it's a hoax. And uh, there's all kinds of evidence for that, but one of the most compelling is that they still buy waterfront property at, at, full, at full price. Uh, so they, they know perfectly well that uh, contrary to what they told, I mean, they used to say that by 2012, um, seaside cities would be underwater. And I'm not speaking about hysterical teenagers like Greta Thunberg, uh, but anybody in politics, I'm speaking about uh, the Al Gores of the world and the John Kerrys of the world and, and many, many, many others, they know perfectly well that climate change is merely another uh, mechanism for gulling a docile populace into huge transfers of wealth. I think by now many people know that the response to the COVID epidemic was yet another huge transfer of wealth and a conditioning of a docile population into the new role of authoritarian government. But um, suffice it to say that um, when it comes to understanding what is really going on, the trend towards secularism is actually a very important factor. And, um, and so, yes, uh, in, in real terms, um, there's no concern really about the future as much as there is about the present. And, uh, and, and it's, it, it sort of suggests a, uh, a, a focus on, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and, and that's kind of a large part of what secularism is. You only go around once. This is it. So you may as well have a good time. And the uh, enormous in increase in content, entertainment content, uh, all the different companies who jumped on the streaming bandwagon after Netflix and uh, became involved in putting out uh, more and more and more content do you remember the good old days when there were just three main TV networks and that's all there was, you know? But now, uh, you know, a hundred people in an office can all have been watching entertainment and have no common theme to talk about when they see each other in the morning at the office because everybody was watching something different. Look, um, that is an example. Entertainment is a way of consuming the present. Uh, with absolutely no reference at all to the past or the future. You're not investing in anything. You're not exercising. You're not benefiting. There's no benefit you get from being entertained. Now, I, I realize that, you know, I'm fighting a losing battle here. Uh, and so 
only for my own family can I limit, restrict, or eliminate screen time, just watching mindless entertainment. And I realize for the population at large, um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the sad steps on the decline of a great nation that people are spending so much of their time on mindless entertainment. But again, focus on the present will do that for you. Um, another thing that uh, secularism does is uh, reduce fertility, making the actual physical survival of a people uh, questionable. As everybody knows, you know, fertility uh, is, it requires uh, about 2.1 children per woman uh, to ensure that uh, at least present numbers are maintained. Anyway, today's show is not about population and the threats of drop-in population, but just to say that uh, several things go hand-in-hand. Hand. As a population becomes secularized, um, it loses touch with the future and the past, and uh, it cares little about its own past and even less about its own future. Um, the other thing that happens is that fertility drops, and a third thing that happens is that masculinity fades and is replaced by a feminized culture and a feminized nation. So one of the things that religion does is it helps keep you attuned in time so you are no longer an orphan of time, but you are aware of the past and of the future. And so uh, religious people see a future. There's, there's a purpose to things. And you find that uh, among modern industrialized countries, Israel has a very strong sense of itself, its mission, its future, and its destiny. And Israel also has a very high fertility rate. In fact, one of the highest, in fact, the highest of the entire uh, industrialized world. It's also interesting that in 1945 and 46, when uh, Jews literally confronted the genocide of, of our people, um, millions had been slaughtered in Nazi death camps and gas chambers, and um, the tiny remnant of European Jewry that crawled out of the death camps were placed in DP camps, displaced persons camps, different parts of Europe. They had one in, a big one in Cyprus and in other places. And uh, they were put there because nobody wanted them and nobody knew what to do with them. And uh, the British were not letting a flow of uh, Jews into Israel, into what was then called Palestine. And so... Um, they just didn't know what to do with them. Would you believe in a most amazing fact, and that is that the highest birth rate in the world, the highest fertility in 1945, post-war 45, war ended in the middle of 45 and 46, uh, was in the um, decimated Jewish populations of the death camps. Would you believe under those conditions, after what they'd gone through, of what the world was looking like, they proceeded to hold marriages and start families in the death camps. That's, that's what happened. That's what happens to a people with a sense of its own future. But if you are secularized, you don't have that. So religion brings fertility. It brings a sense of past and future, right? 
and for Christians, Jesus is here, and um, and and Christians relate very meaningfully to that. Uh, for Jews, the laws of Moses, 3,300 and some odd years old, and they are still as real as they were then. And um, and here's the the third thing that religion helps, and that is maintenance of masculinity in a people. The general spiritual gravity direction is towards feminization of a culture. And it's not hard to see how America as a culture has become feminized, um, even to the point that masculinity is derided and vilified and regarded as toxic. It's horrible. It's dead. It's dreadful. Um, and you just see that uh, self-actualization. Oh, my feelings. Well, I want to be who I want to be. That's feminine. Masculine is there's a mission to be done. So you'll notice the kind of people now that are hired uh, in uh, for fire departments, a certain number of women have to be hired in fire for fire departments. You know, as if a 190-pound man and a 110-pound uh, woman are equally good at dealing with a fire, at rescuing survivors, at holding the nozzle of a heavy hose that is belching out hundreds of gallons of water a minute and making it uh, harder to hold than a raging tiger uh, makes no difference Men, yeah, because self-actualization is so much more important than the mission. Uh, for, for masculine uh, for for a masculine human being, <laughs> a man, uh, the mission matters. Discipline matters. Firmness matters. And that's really a, a distinction. There's a softness to women, and there's a hard, firm rigidity to men in general. And uh, as I've often explained in the past, the way the good Lord created our bodies is as a visual reflection of the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality of women is soft and yielding. The spiritual reality of men is hard and firm and rigid and unyielding. And for heaven's sake, if biology and anatomy do, could make that any clearer than they do already, for heaven's sake. And so uh, that's one of the reasons that um, in the uh, in the days when women were still proud housewives and homemakers, and uh, the children came home from school and they misbehaved, um, mother very often would say, "Just wait till your father gets home." And a masculine man would come home, and instead of sinking down onto the couch and turning on the TV, uh, he would do what needs to be done, which is his wife would tell him, uh, "Johnny needs to be disciplined." And father accepts that it's his job to do that because men cannot be disciplined by women. Men can only be disciplined by men. And yes, I know there were some extraordinary female uh, fighters in the Israeli Defense Force that were in action on that terrible Saturday, October the 7th, 2023, and acquitted themselves remarkably, but um, in all probability, they they didn't do so at no cost to their femini femininity. In the in in general, 
um, militaries where women are in command of men will not work well. They just won't. Remember, you heard it here first. Uh, I can assure you that that is a reliable and uh, and um, uh, an absolutely valid uh, assurance, and that is that um, men under the command of a woman in a military situation will not work as well as men under the command of men. Now, when you see your military as having its prime function, social engineering, and its prime function is to promote transgenderism, whatever that means, uh, then you can afford to play around and uh, and make dreadfully foolish decisions about how to run the military, including uh, putting men under the command of women. Uh, but um, uh, God forbid if that military ever has to actually do some serious fighting, if America is ever in a position where it really has to pull up its britches and throw itself into battle, um, well, there's a lot of people going to be wishing that certain things had not been done. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. And so uh, if you've ever wondered why single moms are not able to stop their sons from falling into trouble with the law, that's the reason I've just told you. It is very difficult, close to impossible, for women to command men. And even when the man is her 16-year-old son, and there isn't a man in her house, she's a single mom, good luck to her, she does not stand much of a chance when it comes to doing that, unless unless she is religious, part of a church family, part of, part of a synagogue family, and men, certain men in that faith family take it upon themselves to help those young boys become men instead of juvenile delinquents this year and violent criminals next year. Uh, that's, that's just a reality. That is what a difference is. And so as a uh, society secularizes, it becomes effeminate and it becomes much less capable of dealing with reality. Reality is that violence always solves things. Have you ever heard people say, oh, violence never solves anything? It's simply not true. Violence almost always solves, if not resolves, things. It just does. Um, you, know, you'll, you know, you'll sometimes see two guys squaring up to each other uh, in a bar or at, at some event, and uh, you know, and, the, and their girlfriends are trying to pull them away and 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 prevent this getting out of hand. And uh, if if it does get out of hand, it then gets resolved by violence. And I'm sorry, it would be nice if if the world didn't work that way. But my job's to tell you how the world really works. And so, uh, yeah, uh, violence is real, and uh, masculinity is the capacity to inflict violence. Uh, one of the reasons that deep down women feel safer with strong men, men who are, are capable and, and, and radiate a confidence at being able to defend and protect them, is precisely that reason. Uh, for women, feeling safe is of paramount importance. 
One of the reasons that women have more satisfying relationships with men to whom they are in good marriages is they feel safe in a good marriage. If they don't feel safe, everything is, everything is off the table for women. It's a huge thing. And again, in a very sophisticated, developed, industrialized civilization where everything works well, and you can dial 911 and the police will be there in a few minutes and their job isn't to catch your murderer, but it's to save your life, uh, then women can proudly say, women need men like a fish needs a bicycle. Very funny. But it's only true when we have set up cultural institutions and machinery that will take care of women. Yes, we've set up social security and we've set up reliable uh, investment programs. And so, yes, uh, women can actually um, take care of themselves and they don't need a man. Of course, when a woman fulfills her biological desires of having a baby, it, it's kind of helpful to have a husband around. And, uh, and that's why it's such nonsense when you hear people say, oh, you know, today women don't need men. Um, women need men just as much as men need women. Uh, people say uh, you can't have everything. Well, you actually can. Here's how you can have everything. If you are part of a couple, if you are part of a married couple, you have everything. That's right. It's the only possible way. There's no guarantee, but there's, it's the only possible hope of having everything. As a woman alone, the idea that you can have a fulfilling family and at the same time, take care of business and work and make a career. And, um, and by making a career, no women think that that means rising up the chain of being a checkout clerk and then a junior manager at the local grocery market. They all dream of making partner in a big firm. Uh, that actually happens to very, very, very few women, I'm sorry to tell you. And those it does happen to have long ago renounced any hope of a uh, full and satisfying family life. Uh, it seems to work sometimes for short periods of time, doesn't work for very long. It doesn't. And so um, the, uh, the idea of having it all, a woman alone doesn't have it all. And a man alone doesn't have it all either. Obviously not. The only hope is together united in marriage and that's and that's what works what has this all got to do with the israel and the muslim conflict in the middle east well um, it has to do because religious societies not only tend to have better memories of the past and future and not only um, do they tend to uh, um, to uh, also um, be more masculine, uh, but they are also better able to uh, to fight. You know, it's as simple as that. Um, physical ability is actually necessary. Again, you know, in a super sophisticated society that has become effeminate, it kind of doesn't matter. So, um, so you have nerds and geeks 
who assume positions of financial power in organizations, and and it pretty much works that way. But uh, you'll notice that it's not that common for very little guys to uh, reach prominence in politics. Now, why should that be? You know, why is it that there have been very few exceptions in American history, but that the taller of the presidential candidates wins the presidential election? Very few exceptions. Now, that doesn't apply if they're both, you know, one six foot one and one six foot two. But if one is five foot nine and one is six foot two, there's a very strong tendency for people to vote for the taller one. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes in debates, they put boxes for shorter candidates to stand on. Being seen as a smaller man is a huge drawback in the real world, if you know what I mean. Uh, yes, in in uh, in many, many modern situations, it just doesn't matter. But in politics, where you're kind of choosing the guy who's going to lead you, it's, you know, it's a little bit like um, joining a military platoon and finding yourself under the command of a very unimposing, small, frail-looking guy. And you say to yourself, this is the guy who's got to lead me into combat? I don't think so. It doesn't work that way. Um, that that's just it's not it's not um, it's not how men think at all, and uh, I think women are are very unaware of how this works. Um, women don't know that even in semi-civilized situations, I'm not talking about a barb rule, but even in semi-civilized circumstances. Deep inside men's minds when they meet and size one another up is, can I take him? If I had to, could I take him? Now, this is a perfectly civilized situation. Nobody's going to be taking anybody. But um, it, this is something that men have when they're adolescents and when they're older as well. It doesn't go away at all. At any rate, um, another difference between masculinity and femininity is whether the appeal is to the emotions or the intellect. Now, understand what I'm saying. You know, obviously, uh, this isn't to say that women lack intellect or men lack emotions. I'm simply saying that intuitively, if you're not going to stop and think about it, uh, men's initial impact tends towards uh, an intellectual abstract solution, women's towards an emotional one. And that's why you've, you know, you're all familiar with the old joke, which, in which there's a lot of truth, which is that, uh, that you know, one, one's wife starts telling you about a problem and you do what we all do, right? We guys, we immediately start thinking of a solution. And, and we don't realize, and, you know, and this turns into a trope on the internet, but we don't realize that uh, she she doesn't want a solution as much as she wants us to listen. That is so feminine and beautiful and appealing and lovely. Uh, but that same woman is going to be very, very, very happy to have a man next to her, either for defense, if the worst comes to the worst, or to fix something, if it needs fixing. Uh, that's just something that, that comes innately to guys. So if you even notice the appeal to the country to fund the Ukrainian uh, futile war, um, all emotional. 
it's all emotional. Nobody has given any explanation for why this uh, funding Ukraine is in America's long-term interest. Either, well, if if we show them in Ukraine, we show the Russians in Ukraine, well, then uh, the Chinese won't do anything about Taiwan because they'll see what tough guys we are. Now, you don't really believe that, right? It's all emotionalism. And, um, and uh, politicians appeal to people through emotion. Um, even the, the, uh, the legal system is deteriorating to that of emotion. You know, whether the, 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 the criminal is actually a poor, oppressed victim that we should feel sorry for. No, it's very simple. He committed a crime. Your culture will collapse if you do not have an impartial judicial system. No, but we've got to, we've got to feel the pain that they've experienced. A culture becomes more and more effeminate, and it's one of the steps on its journey downhill from um, affluence to oblivion to decadence and to up to actual to uh, to to departure from the world stage. That is uh, in our schools. Right? There's no objectivity being taught in the schools. Everything is subjective. Everything is emotional. We've just become very very feminine as the culture has become very uh, secularized. So in other words, uh, being secularized takes away fertility. It takes away understanding and awareness of the past and the future. And uh, it takes away masculinity and allows femininity. I'm not going to talk about now exactly how um, religion sustains masculinism. But uh, I will tell you, there's no question that uh, whether the religion is the culture of the Quran or whether it's the Judeo-Christian-based twin faiths of Judaism and, and uh, Christianity, uh, both of them protect masculinity. I don't think anybody will doubt that. Uh, you, again, you just have to look and see, and uh, you know that's true. But as the as America has become uh, secularized, well, what do you expect? Uh, what happens is, and I, I should explain this, that in um, in a Jewish household, uh, the the particularly the Sabbath meal doesn't begin until the father has said certain blessings, said a blessing on the wine, said a certain blessing on the bread, and as I've often pointed out to guests. Uh, do you not think that Susan Lappin knows the uh, blessing on the wine? You think she doesn't know the blessing on the bread? Of course she does. So if I'm late at the table, why doesn't she just go ahead and do it and supper can begin? And the answer is because this is one of many, many, many examples of where the Torah, Judaism, maintains a very specific role for the man. Uh, another one is the quorum for prayer. We need 10 men for prayer services to occur. And so uh, various feminized branches of Judaism, like conservative Judaism, and which is not politically conservative at all, and reform branches of Judaism, uh, started allowing women to count for the making up of a quorum. Now, you would think that that would mean there would be more such prayer meetings in existence because we've doubled the potential number of people to make them up. What happened? They diminished. Because when you take away men's only space, the men quit going. 
And so sure enough, uh, and I must say, occasionally uh, I'm at a prayer service in the morning where there are some women present as well for one reason or another. Uh, it does have a different flavor for it. Look, I love women. I, I'm, I'm married to one. I'm the father of several others. Uh, this is not a problem for me. But there's something that has to be maintained in masculinity, and it thrives in a men-only environment. It does not thrive in a co-ed environment. And so a lot about uh, Judaism, I can't speak for any other religions, I don't know them, but in Judaism there are many particular roles that are locked in exclusively for men in order to make sure that masculinity is preserved and protected. And that is exactly uh, what happens and exactly what is supposed to happen. And one of the things that makes the current battle in the Middle East and previous battles as well so incredibly violent and furious and worrying and existential is because it is too masculine countries or cultures against one another. When a masculine culture fights a feminine culture, the feminine culture is not likely to do well in exactly the same way, right? If, um, you know, if we took a line, I've mentioned this before, if you take a line of 100 men and put a line of 100 women opposite them, let's say all average-sized women and average-sized men, and we ask the 100 women to now take their hardest punch at the man standing in front of them. What are we going to get? It's possible that if uh, Michelle Obama is found standing opposite a five foot four man, we're going to have one man knocked to the ground. But in general, out of the hundred women who punch as hard as they can, a hundred men, I'd say we're going to have 60 sprained wrists, 10 broken wrists, all female. And, um, you know, and basically a lot of smiling men. What happens if we now ask the men to take their hardest shot at the woman standing in front of them? There'll be some dead women. There's a fundamental difference between masculinity and femininity. And anybody who disputes this uh, is not living in the real world. And so uh, um, Israel is an incredibly masculine society. And uh, and nobody can dispute that Muslim jihadists are masculine. And um, so you've got two masculine forces hurled into warfare at one another. And it's, uh, it's hard, it's bloody and painful and uh, very, very difficult. Uh, but in the end, as always, violence will resolve it. Sorry to say, but that's how the world really works. We know that. And, um, and so that is just a, a little bit of how important it is to understand the reality of masculinity and femininity and how it affects militaries and societies and marriages and uh, businesses. It's uh, these basic phenomena are found in all parts of society, and it's only 
in super sophisticated, overdeveloped Western societies where a lot of this can be camouflaged because of the comfort, luxury, security, prosperity of life. But as those things decline, as they surely are, it becomes more and more evident that a man needs a woman and a woman needs a man. And it becomes more and more evident that um, a woman wants a man who is a man. She wants a man who can make her feel safe. And, um, And a man wants a woman whom he doesn't have to fight. He doesn't have to challenge wills with. A woman who is soft and yielding in every way. So uh, these things are real, and uh, reality is what we try and discuss on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I do hope that you will go ahead and uh, acquire yourself a copy of our newest book called The Holistic You, and you'll find it at your favorite bookseller, uh, The Holistic You. Go and read about it, and I think you'll see why we wrote it. So, everybody, that brings us to the end of today's uh, show. Thank you very much for being part of the show, and uh, I wish you a week of great success with your five Fs, your families, your finances, your fitness, your faith, and your friendships. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.